Hello everyone and thank you for joining us on this vidi guide. Today we'll be exploring the remnants of the Berlin Wall. We'll learn all about Berlin's place in Europe during the 20th century and how the Cold War tore this city apart. My name is Colm, I'm an artist living here in Berlin, and to make sure I get my details right, I'm here with my very good friend and historian, Katie. Well, hello Colm, and hello everybody. Now, today we'll explore how Berlin has changed since the late 1940s, and how the lives of those living both in the East and the West have been affected. We're also going to take a look into the art scene of the West, and of course hear some really chilling stories of oppression and totalitarianism in the East that led to a truly tragic chapter of Berlin's story. And of course, for 28 of those 40 years of separation, the town and its inhabitants were physically split by a hard border, the Berlin Wall. And this was essentially a consequence of the Second World War, right, Katie? Exactly, yes. After defeating Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, the victorious Allied powers, uh, that's the United Kingdom, the United States, France and the Soviet Union, occupied Germany to help the nation recover from years of dictatorship and war. However, before long, the ideological differences between the Soviets and the Western Allies became problematic, since both camps had very different ideas about what this recovery should look like. Yes, so the two sides had completely opposing worldviews, so it's really no wonder that the relationship became a bit strained, to say the least. And right here, we actually have a bird's eye view of how this clash of ideologies eventually impacted the city physically. That's right. Have a look around for a 3D scale model of this street, a Banauerstrasse, on the patch of grass next to you. Looking at the model, it seems like the border actually ran along this road. Oh yes. We're going to be following the route laid out on this model today, walking alongside where the wall once stood, from where we're standing right now, next to Gartenstrasse, all the way along to Schwedter Street on the other side of the mod. So that main road, Bernauerstrasse, stood on the border between Mitte, a borough which belonged to the Soviets, and Wedding, part of the Western French sector. So if you crossed the road here, you were basically going from east to west, from communism to capitalism. Absolutely. Wow, okay. Now, Katie, I know that Berlin was split into two, but wasn't the city and the country originally divided into four sections? Yes, well remembered. Uh, the Western Allies didn't want the Soviets to have complete power here, as they were afraid of the spread of communism into Western Europe. So they insisted on having a stake in Berlin. Uh, they split Germany into four, and each zone was to be governed according to the ideology of its occupying power. Doesn't sound terribly sustainable. It wasn't. The strict, state-controlled communist regime of the East didn't really meld with the market-based capitalism of the West. Mm, and it gets even more complicated when you think about the lay of the land around Berlin. Uh, wasn't the city basically surrounded by Soviet control, Katie? Yes, the entire northeastern part of the country was under the control of the Soviet Union. So the western-occupied sectors of Berlin became effectively a tiny island of capitalism in the midst of a vast landscape of communism. When did Germany's separation into four areas become a more clear-cut divide between two? Well, this official split occurred in 1949, four years after the Second World War ended. The relationship between the former allies of East and West had become so strained that the Soviet Union declared their occupation zones to be a new state, East Germany, a country which would officially belong to the Soviet Union. This was shortly followed by the creation of West Germany, as the Western allies merged their zones and followed suit. 
However, West Berlin, as you can see in the image, was in the middle of East Germany, meaning that it was, as we said, basically an isolated Western enclave. The last outpost of the Western world buried within the Soviet Union. Sounds intense. Uh, but people could still move around quite freely at that point, couldn't they? At first, yes. And many East Germans left to start a new life in the West, attracted by higher living standards and more personal freedom. And so that's why the Soviets started erecting borders. Exactly. Uh, the first ran between these two new Germanys and would eventually be extended all through Europe. Yes, absolutely. And this, of course, became known as the Iron Curtain, preventing defection from east to west. However, there was still a little piece of the Western world that could be accessed without crossing the Iron Curtain. And that would be West Berlin. Being on the wrong side of the divide, as we see on the map, this little island of freedom offered East Germans a potential escape route. And that's why so many sought refuge here. Upon arrival, they would simply have to apply for a Western passport, which was very easy to get, and you were then able to legitimately leave as a new Western citizen. This meant that the exodus continued despite the Iron Curtain all throughout the 1950s. And I can imagine, Katie, that the Soviets weren't too happy about this uh, leak from east to west. They were not. By 1961, around 3.5 million East Germans had escaped to the west, around 20% of the state's original population. This posed an existential problem for the young East German state, since the loss was disproportionately heavy among young, recently qualified professionals. That's why the East decided to take drastic action on August the 12th, 1961. Okay, what happened then? In the middle of the night, the East sent armed guards to surround the western sectors of Berlin, and then began to roll out a barbed wire fence and erect the first primitive version of the Berlin Wall. And this was totally out of the blue for the Berliners? Completely. Wow. People on the east and the west woke up on the 13th of August to find their town had been crudely divided. The new hard border patrolled by armed soldiers zigzagged through the city, around corners and across streets, closely following the postcode lines which marked out which boroughs belonged to the east and which didn't. And so this was the birth of the Berlin Wall? Yes, it was. Here on Banauerstrasse, the street was divided vertically, with the houses on one side landing in the capitalist island of West Berlin, and those on the other side isolated in the east. God, that must have been so devastating for the people of Berlin, to be cut off from family and friends like that so suddenly and without warning. It was, and today we'll have a look at how this division affected the lives of East and West Berliners. Let's head over and take a look at the wall in person. Well, Katie, it's not the tallest wall I've ever seen, I have to say. No, it's not. But remember, Colm, there was much more to the border system than just the main wall. Uh, the Berlin Wall really consisted of two parallel walls with a kind of no-man's land in between them, which became known as the Death Strip. Oh God, the Death Strip. That doesn't sound too inviting. And for good reason. If you tried to get through here, you were putting your life at huge risk. Beside us, we have a preserved section of the main wall, but back in the direction we came from, you can see the lower rear wall. And between the two, there were landmines, electric fences, spikes in the ground, and a patrol of armed guards with orders to shoot to kill. So I suppose if you consider all of the other parts of the death strip, uh, I guess the main wall here didn't need to be all that tall, did it? Right. And most people would never have made it this far. The rear wall back there was as close as most East Berliners could get to the west. 
From the east, there was very little chance of getting through, so you could say the wall was very effective. Right. Effective, sure, but it's not really a great look, is it? Not at all. Uh, The wall meant that East Germany managed to contain its population, but it also meant that its reputation suffered on the international stage, since it was obvious to everyone that they were keeping their own citizens imprisoned. You'd need a pretty amazing PR team to spin the ruthlessness of what was going on here. Well, they actually did try to spin the wall as a good thing for their population. The Eastern regime didn't refer to it as the Berlin Wall. Instead, they called it the Anti-Fascist Protection Barrier. The Anti-Fascist Protection Barrier. Very catchy. Uh, So they were trying to suggest that it was for the benefit of their own citizens. Uh, We're doing this for your own good kind of thing. Yeah, more or less. I mean, as you can imagine, there was a lot of propaganda floating about at that time. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Now, it might seem like West Berlin was completely surrounded by this hard border, but it was actually the people in the east who were trapped then. That's right. Yeah, those with Western status were allowed to cross over to West Germany and move through the checkpoints. After a while, they were even allowed into the east to visit family and friends on short-term visas. But for the East Berliners, the war meant they were completely cut off from Western Europe. Looking around now, it's hard to believe, isn't it? East Berlin must have felt like some kind of large-scale, surreal prison. No doubt this was a source of inspiration for artists, too. Oh yes, absolutely. And one of the most famous examples of this was, of course, David Bowie, who moved here to West Berlin in the 1970s and produced some of his most iconic albums at Hansa Studios, not far from here. Yes, of course. A Bowie and Iggy Pop, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Those two were actually flatmates back then. Bowie said that he enjoyed the anonymity of West Berlin, especially comparing it with the extreme celebrity culture of Los Angeles, where he'd been before. It was certainly a kind of refuge for him. He also said that one of his most famous songs, Heroes, was actually inspired by a pair of lovers he saw one day kissing beside the Berlin Wall. Wow, I didn't know that. Oh, what a song. What a song. Absolutely incredible song. Uh, Anyway, back to the construction of the wall. You mentioned, Katie, that the border began as a barbed wire fence. How long did that last then? Just a matter of weeks. Uh, The Eastern regime got to work very quickly fortifying the border. So what began as a relatively simple fence, hastily erected in the dead of night, soon became a complex, double-walled border system, running for 168 kilometres and surrounding West Berlin. The wall that we're standing beside here was actually the fourth generation of the Berlin Wall. This was the final infamous wall which the world saw fall in 1989. Right, and it's this wall which became the symbol of suffering during this troubled chapter of Berlin's story. Today, certain stretches of it have been left standing as monuments to that suffering, and as a reminder of the tragic circumstances that people lived through here in this city. And just ahead of us, there is a memorial to some of the victims of the Berlin Wall which was erected here in the former death strip in memory of those who lost their lives as a result of the division of Berlin. You can see beneath each face is a name and their dates of birth and death. Notice also how there are some that are blank. Yeah, what do they represent exactly, Katie? Well, officially there were 136 people killed trying to cross the Berlin Wall. However, we can't be sure of this statistic as there was a strong desire to cover up instances when lethal force had been used by Eastern border guards. And because many indirect victims of the wall are not included in this. Right, so the true number of people who died as a result of the Berlin Wall could in fact be much higher. 
Exactly. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Sophian Friedhof before it became home to the Berlin Wall? Of course. Uh, so before the wall, the area that we're walking through was part of a cemetery named the Sophian Friedhof. It still exists, and we can see it on our right here, beyond the memorial window. A large part of it was razed and destroyed for the purpose of building the border, and that's why you can see some wooden crosses and a large stone memorial as you walk along here. They're in memory of the graves that were desecrated during the construction of the Berlin Wall. Wow, so they really just built right along the district lines, regardless of what stood in the way, didn't they? Yes, and not only that, the Eastern authorities even used existing structures as part of the border, since it was such a hasty procedure. The red brick wall just ahead to the left, for example, which was once the front wall of the cemetery, was used as part of the Berlin Wall alongside many houses down here on Bernauerstrasse. Okay, hang on. People's homes were actually part of the wall as well? Early on, yes. Because the division was so arbitrary and artificial, certain houses, especially here on Bernauerstrasse, were situated so that you would walk out the front door and into East Berlin, while the back or the side windows of the same house could provide access into the west. So surely you could just escape through people's houses then? Yes, and people did. In the first few days of the division, many people escaped through these windows. However, the border guards soon realised what was going on and stormed the houses, dragging people back into the communist east. Eventually, these family homes were forcefully evacuated, bricked up and torn down in many cases by the eastern authorities. It's unbelievable to think what people were put through here, especially when you consider how we can just cross so easily today, how the scar of the division isn't physically noticeable at many points of the city. Exactly. The scar would be invisible if it wasn't for the efforts of Berliners today, actively marking and memorialising these locations to remember the city's complicated history. Now, if I'm not wrong, we're now walking into West Berlin? Yes, we are, yeah. We're now walking into what was a, a relatively artistic area where there was a kind of rebellious spirit in the air. Mm, there were quite a lot of artists in West Berlin at the time, weren't there? Absolutely, yes. And there was a big financial appeal. Because of the precarious situation of West Berlin in the context of the Cold War, the people who chose to live here were given certain benefits and subsidies. Mm, rent was very cheap, and since there wasn't huge demand to live in such a precariously positioned enclave city, you could earn pretty decent wages just by working in a cafe or a bar something many artists are all too familiar with. Also, there was no mandatory military service for West Berliners, which made it a very attractive place for conscientious objectors and alternative thinkers. And I've heard that the modern tradition of not having a mandatory closing time for bars comes from West Berlin, too. I suppose that might have been attractive for certain people. Oh, was that part of your decision to come here, Colin? <laughs> you could say that it was one of the reasons, one of many reasons, Katie. <laughs> But there is a real sense of freedom here today, isn't there, Katie? Especially for internationals who are perhaps more used to uh, some more restrictive regulations. Yeah, and of course back then, part of the sense of personal freedom of West Berlin was highlighted and heightened by the fact that you could see armed border guards in their towers right beside you looking over East Berlin. Mm, what an incredible contrast, isn't it? The artistic freedom in the West and the armed tyranny of the East. Uh, weren't there also these kinds of uh, viewing platforms where West Berliners could climb up and look into the neighbouring communist city? Oh yes, there were. 
However, it's important not to take an overly Western stance on West Berlin. As we'll explore in our next track, life was incredibly hard for East Berliners, but we shouldn't think of one side as purely good and the other as purely bad. It's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, for example, uh, there were good nurseries and, and preschool education, uh, which was one of the most regularly invoked of East Germany's alleged jewels. And there were far more working mothers in East Germany than in West Germany. Uh, there were free nursery spots for every one of their children starting just weeks after birth. Okay, interesting. But wasn't there also a lot of ideological indoctrination in those schools? Yes, that is true. Uh, one of the approved kids' songs was actually called I Want to Be a Volkspolizist, which was the national police force of East Germany. Uh, daycare centres were also rigid and authoritarian, encouraging kids to groupthink and not explore their identity or creativity. Right, so while of course we shouldn't think of East and West Berlin in black and white terms, it is also important to face the realities of how hard living in East Berlin could be. Agreed, yes, there's a balance to it. Yes, absolutely. And if you want to learn more about the lives of people who lived in East, there is a free indoor exhibition here on our left, all about the Berlin Wall. Here on the eastern side of the reconstructed death strip, they've arranged it so that you can take a peek between the slabs of concrete in the rear wall. But that wasn't the case when the border was in operation, was it, Katie? No, not at all. In fact, as an Easterner, it would have been quite intimidating to get this close. Chances are that there would have been guards telling you that they could see you and warning you to turn back. Right, so retreat from the anti-fascist protection barrier or something like that. Yes, that and possibly even firing warning shots if you failed to do so. And you see this tower here? Oh yeah? There was one like this roughly every 500 metres within the death strip. And at the top of each tower were two guards. Okay, that must have been an awful lot of towers. Yeah, 302 to be exact. We're talking about a huge investment of time, energy and of course money, all in order to secure the border. But I would have thought that East Germany wasn't a particularly wealthy nation, Katie. No, it wasn't. But whatever money they did have, they invested it mostly into things like this, which of course was to the detriment of public life. Right, okay, so pretty easy to see what their priorities were then. That must be why, while the West was booming, rebuilding and returning to some degree of normality after the war, there were all those areas in the East that lay still bombed out and run down well into the 1980s. Yeah, it was all about border security in the East. But even with all that security, people still managed to escape, didn't they? Oh yes. For the 28 years that the wall stood, approximately 5,000 people escaped. Nothing like the numbers getting out before the wall was built, of course, and still not a small amount of people either. And what made this even worse for the East was the fact that of these 5,000 escapees, roughly 1,200 of them were actually border guards themselves. You're joking. So the people supposed to be guarding the border were actually the very ones breaching it. That's right. How terribly unsurprising. Uh, I guess the temptation of the western city lights from the top of their guard towers was just too much for them. Yeah, I guess so. From that vantage point, it's easy to imagine, isn't it? And I think it also shows you that there wasn't that much belief in the system behind all of the rhetoric, bravado and militarism. Underneath the uniform was often just a, a young man who wanted to live a life free of tyranny. Later we'll see the story of Konrad Schumann, a guard who hopped the wall and escaped into West Berlin. It's absolutely fascinating to read about the stories of individuals who grew up in East Berlin. 
Uh, someone I've read about is Heidi Brower, an East Berliner who still vividly remembers just how bleak life could be. Oh yes, according to Heidi, if you wanted to buy a car, even one that was just a small trabby trabant, you had to wait for 10 to 12 years. You could buy in the winter time maybe one kilogram of bananas or oranges, but that was it. And with clothes, it was the same. The communist-controlled state also prevented her from going into further education. And this is another direct quote. She says, When I wanted to go to the next higher school, the gymnasium, they called it, I wasn't allowed to for political reasons. And when the Berlin Wall came down, Heidi found a long Stasi file on her. In one year of spying on her, the Stasi had accumulated 1,500 pages of content collected by 12 different spies. I was shocked, she said. I hadn't done anything. Oh, yes, I've heard about the Stasi, you know. Uh, Who were they exactly, Katie? Well, we'll talk about them in a couple of stops' time, but for now, let's take a quick detour through an East Berlin neighbourhood and learn even more about what their life was like. All right, follow your map and we'll meet you on Ackerstrasse, next to a double cobblestone brick line along the ground. Hi, everyone, and thank you for listening. I'm Will, the producer here at VidiGuides, and what you've just heard is an extract from a much longer self-guided travel experience. You can download the full version of this tour on our app, or by visiting the VidiGuides website, which should be in this podcast show notes. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.